When I was a young boy, and I was a young boy once, when I was a young boy, I was asked at this time of year the question that uh, millions of children are asked. What do you want for Christmas? Children all over the country, all over the world are being asked the same question. What do you want for Christmas? And, you know, I started thinking about this pre pretty seriously. And when I was a child, I'd have a laundry list of different toys and things that I would desired. When my children were young, I would ask my children, what do you want for Christmas? And they would give me a list of things that they wanted and they desired. But I honestly stopped and asked myself that question this year. I said, what do I want for Christmas? And so I'm going to share with you my Christmas wish. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I've debated over the term wish because I don't want it to be perceived in a secular sense. You know, I'm really hoping that something, you know, keep your fingers crossed and it will get that stuff out of here. I guess it probably would be better entitled My Christmas Desire. What is my Christmas desire? And here it is pretty simply. I yearn for the day when I, when I touch the heart of God. That's, that's my desire. That's the thing that I want. And I want it for the church in the worst way. That we, that we would touch the heart of God. You know, when you think about Christmas, you know, there's all this other stuff that goes back and forth, right? We give gifts because God gave us the best gift in Jesus Christ. You know what? That's baloney and it's non-biblical. Okay. We give gifts because we like receiving gifts. That's the simple truth. All right. But if you go back to the first coming of Jesus Christ... God gave us his son so that we, we might have fellowship with him. And if you really honestly think about it, how could we ever repay such a debt? Well, you can't, obviously. But if that is the case, if we make that assumption that you can't repay such a debt, then certainly by being indifferent, by being cold, by being religious, by being ritualistic or formalistic, that does not justify anything either. And so my Christmas desire for me is that, Lord, I want to touch the heart of God. I want to be that fragrant aroma. I want to be that sacrifice unto him. I want God to look and say, well done, faithful servant. And my Christmas desire for us as a church is that a collective we would come to that place where we touch the heart of God. You know how many times I say, boy, would I, 
you know, my desire is that to know God and to be known by God. Those are two separate and distinct things, right? One is experientially that I get to know God experientially, not intellectually, not philosophically, but emotionally I get to experience the presence of God. And the second thing is that God would know me. That God would say, that's my son Mark. That's my son Daniel. That's my son Mike. That's my daughter Christy. That's my daughter Susan. That he would come to this place that we would be, we would know God and we would be known of God. And so I selected for my text, and I always like selecting texts that aren't overtly for Christmas, but I selected for my text Isaiah 12. Verses 1 through 6. And let me share something. I want to be crystal clear with this. When I talk about touching the heart of God, I am not saying that figuratively. I am not saying that symbolically. I am not saying that as a metaphor. I am saying that literally. I literally want to touch the heart of God. I had a great opportunity this week to be away at a, at a conference, and Brother Mike was with me, and we went to the conference in Greenville, South Carolina. And it was great. We got to spend a lot of time talking, and we saw some great preachers and everything else. But the, the thing that blessed me the most was the fact that there was an assembly of believers who were looking for the move of God again on the face of the church. That's what we need. We need the move of God. We need the power of God to descend upon the church. And in order to descend upon the church, I always remember what my brother Dan Garlic always said to me. He used to say to me, Mark, remember God does not bless churches. God blesses people. And when the people of God are being blessed, the church is being blessed. And when the people of God are searching after God, then the church is searching after God. And I can think of no more important thing, no more important present desire, whatever you have. Nothing could be more important that we as a people of God would come to that place where we touch the heart of God. Now, I'll give you a little bit of background regarding this text. This is Isaiah the prophet speaking, approximately 700 years before Christ. And he's speaking of a day when Israel, Judah, Israel, in the millennial kingdom, will come to that saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. By the way, we like to talk today as as today being the day of the Gentiles and what a great outpouring God has done on the Gentiles. But God indeed has a future work for Israel and the salvation and the revival that is going to occur in Israel at the appointed time is going to be the greatest ever. The greatest ever. Because God is true to His covenant promises. And He is true to His people Israel. God will bring full and final redemption to Israel. And she will be delivered from her enemies. And she will be made right by the complete repentance and confession 
of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. That's what Isaiah 53 is about. Isaiah 53 is Israel looking back on the rejection of Christ. That's why it begins, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before us like a tender shoot. Israel is looking, the nation is looking back. It's a prophecy of the nation Israel looking back in retrospect of that day in Zechariah 12 when the prophet Zechariah says they will look upon me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for me as one mourns for an only son. That is exactly what Isaiah 53 is about. It is the mourning of Israel. What did we do with Christ, the moaning of Israel, that we rejected him on his appearance to the nation? In her restored state, and in her right standing before God, Israel will sing the song of the redeemed. It's a doxology of praise. If you look at Isaiah chapter 11, and you look at verses 1 and 2, it says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. We know who this shoot is. We know who it is. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is going to come from the root of Jesse. And this rod will be none other than the Lord. He is the branch. He's the stump. And upon him will be the sevenfold spirit of God. We see this in Revelations chapter uh, 1 as well. The spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel, strength, knowledge, the fear of the Lord. This is indeed Israel's deliverer, and this is our deliverer, right? Christ was going to be a healing for all the nations. Christ was going to reconcile all the tribes of the world. Christ was going to reconcile every tongue and every language and every ethnicity and every race will be reconciled in Jesus Christ. The rest of chapter 11 speaks of the great things this deliverer, this Messiah, will do for Israel during that millennial reign. So you're probably saying, okay, great, what's that got to do with Christmas? I'll get there. Okay, I'll get there. As you forward into Isaiah chapter 12, now you see this hymn of praise, this hymn of the redeemed that Israel is going to sing in that great millennium. And if you read through, it says, Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to thee, O Lord, for although thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away, and thou dost comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Therefore you will joyously draw water from the spring of salvation, And in that day you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people, make them remember that his name is exalted. Praise the Lord in song for he has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth, cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in the midst is the Holy One of Israel. Boy, 
I got to tell you, that does not sound like somebody who goes to church on Sunday. Will you agree with me? That is someone who is absorbed and preoccupied and giving glory and joy to the Lord because God is indeed good. Look at that first verse. Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to thee, O Lord, for although thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away, and thou dost comfort me. We now come to verse 1, and the prophecy continues speaking of this great Savior. Oh, you know, chapter 11 spoke of what the deliverer would do. Chapter 12 speaks of the response of Israel in light of what God has done. You know those two things go together, don't you? You know what empty praise is? Empty praise are a bunch of people singing in a room, not in response to what God has done. Empty praise is a bunch of people singing and toe-tapping in a room because the music produces an emotional response in them, but emotional response that they don't know anything about. It's flesh. Churches are full of flesh. People toe-tapping and dancing, and it's no wonder that every single time you speak to somebody, one of the first things that they say today, I love the music. I love the worship. I was in a church one time in a leadership meeting, and there was questions about the type and style of, of music. And one person stood up and said, I think we should rock it out. I think we should put the lights. I think we should put the fog. I think we should do all this other different stuff. Just rock it out. So this way, you know, people will come in off the street. They'll hear the music. They'll come in and they'll worship God. And I turned to this person and I said, what's wrong with you? And he looked at me offended. I said, don't you know that unbelievers can't worship God? Don't you know that it is, if it is the house of God, the privilege of worship is only given to the redeemed? That only the saved have the privilege to worship God? What's wrong with you? Listen, church. If you have been touched by Jesus Christ, if you have been born again by Jesus Christ, if God's Spirit reigns within you, then you are the redeemed. And as part of being the redeemed, we do like Israel did. We respond in joy, in exaltation, in praise to what God has done. We read Luke chapter 2 this morning as our scripture reading. And you know the story, it's been so sentimentalized. Charlie Bound Christmas, who is a lioness that goes up with his blanket. I know what Christmas is all about. And he quotes from Luke chapter 2. For there were angels gathered around in the field that night, and they were so afraid, and the angel of the Lord, right? We, we know the drill. But sometimes in the midst of it, we miss the meaning. Yes, the shepherds were in the field. Yes, the sky broke open. Yes, they spoke to the shepherds. Yes, it terrified the shepherds. That's what the King James says. They were sore afraid. And the angel had to calm them down first because the angel had to say, fear not. 
for Bor, I didn't come to destroy you tonight. This vision that you're going to see is not going to rip your guts out. I came to bring you good news that's going to be to all men. For born to you this day in the city of David, it is the Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign to you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angels a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God. Praising. Notice what they did. They were praising God for what God had done. God had sent the Savior. They were praising God for what God had done. There appeared a multitude of heavenly hosts. Could you imagine the scene? The sky split open, all the angels out there, and they're going, praise God, glory to God in the highest, on on earth, peace and goodwill toward men. And what did the angels, what did the shepherds do? They popped open a beer and took a cigar and smoke and stayed there for the rest of the, of the night, Right? No, what did they do? They said to one another, let us go straightway and see this thing which the Lord has made known. And so they went to Bethlehem and they found the baby and Mary in a manger and they worshiped him. And what happened? Well, the Bible tells us in verse 20, the shepherds went away what? glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard. They were changed. We're going to meet one of those guys in heaven. You know, we're going to say, hey, were you one of them shepherds? I was one of them shepherds. Man, you should have seen what it was like that first night. But how is it that shepherds come into an encounter with God and now Christians supposedly come into an encounter with God, but we're not changed. We don't leave praising God. We don't leave glorifying God. And I tell you what what my Christmas wish is, is that I would touch the heart of God in response to everything that God has done for me. I want to bless Him. Let me tell you something. Salvation, contrary to what you've heard from all the other preachers and all the other pastors, here's a silver bullet for you. Salvation is not about you. It's about God. It's about Christ. And as Christians, we must, we must, we must, we must be impacted by what God has done for us. And we cannot be indifferent. Notice what it says here in verse 1. He says, I will give thanks to thee. That's not an empty thanks, that's not a check. That's not a few bucks thrown into the offering plate. That's not a a one day a week, two day a week, or three day religious experience. I will give thanks to thee. It is a life consumed out of gratitude for what God has done. In this context, Israel has been saved, delivered by the mercy of God and the grace of God has been poured out upon them. And I go back to what I said earlier. If you have been saved, if you have been born again, if you come to Christ and you come to Him out of tradition or formality or ritualism 
If you come to Christ, if you come to church because you're, quote, raised a Christian, well then, you need to repent and come to faith in Christ. Because the ritualism, the formalism, the traditionalism, none of that will save you. None of it. It's only a broken and a contrite heart that God desires. Israel, the nation today, that day has not come for them. So in essence, it could be said that Israel is waiting for that day. But you know what, church? For the believers in Jesus Christ, that day has indeed come. It has indeed. If you are in Christ, you have been touched by the grace and the mercy of God. That day has come. And I'm going to tell you something. We cannot be indifferent to that. Our hearts must burn for God. We must desire it. If you don't desire it today and you're a Christian, I'll tell you what. Cry, beg, meet with the Lord, but ask God, Lord, put that fire, put that burning inside my heart. Lord, I yearn and I yearn for you. The prophet says, I will give thanks to thee, O Lord, for thou, although thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away. And thou dost comfort me. When we were driving back to the airport on Friday night, I was talking to Brother Mike in the car. And I made this statement. I hate, I hate the things that I did before I was saved. I hate it. I don't revel in it. I don't take joy in it. I don't have fond memories of it. I hate that so much of my life was wasted and so much of my life was thrown away through the power and the denomination of sin, the domination of sin. And the joy of my heart is that I now, as a saved man, get to give back to God what he has given me. I give thanks to thee, O God. O church, I want to respond with thanksgiving, with joy. I want to touch the heart of God with appreciation. Will you join me with that? Look at verse 2. Behold, he says, God is my son. Boy, if you don't have verse 2 underlined in your Bible, would you underline verse 2? Look at these words. Behold, God is my salvation. Notice these words. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Hmm. In Israel's song of thanksgiving, they express their thanks to the greatness of God. Of this greatness, they express it the following way. Notice, God is my salvation. My hope, my trust, my complete salvation rests in Him. 
God is my salvation. There's nothing else. My church isn't my salvation. My good works are not my salvation. My best intentions are not my salvation. You talk to people today, you think that's the case. It's their best intentions, right? Well, why don't you do, oh, I don't do this, I don't do that. Oh, well, you know, God knows my heart. You know my sentiment on it. I'm not going to beat a dead horse. He does know your heart, and that should terrify you. So nobody takes solace in that. Nobody say, oh boy, God knows my heart. Yeah, because if he looks in that heart, you're a dead man. Notice what Israel says here. Israel didn't say, I am my salvation. My best intention is my salvation. Israel is very clear and very specific. God himself is my salvation. Christ himself is my salvation. And if you're entrusting in anything other than that, you have a spiritual problem. But there is a solution to that problem. Repent, turn from your sins, place all your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the only antidote for sin, as the only remedy, and trust him and him alone. Notice what it says. I will trust him and I will not be afraid. My goodness, this probably last two years should be called the years of fear and anxiety. Years of fear and anxiety. You know, most of the church doesn't realize that COVID is a judgment from God. Most of them don't realize that. You see the church crying out to God, Oh God, we have sinned in your name. We've done horrible things in your name. Oh Lord God, forgive us. Bring about, Lord, repentance and restore us. No, what do you hear? Well, we're going to trust in man. Shut down this. Vote for that guy. Get this shot. Get that shot. Listen, it's not a statement about shots, okay? So I, I want to be crystal clear with that. I'm not making a political statement. What I am saying is that majority of the church looks for political solutions, scientific solutions, medical solutions, but they abandon repentance. They just see it as another physiological thing. Now, you may disagree with me, and, and that's okay. You can disagree with me. I'm not going to be dogmatic about that. But I will tell you this. Until the church recognizes that the sin of this nation is horrific and great and we have turned, and I've said it, as goes the church, so goes the nation. So judgment begins in the household of God. Israel in that great millennial day says, hey, all the enemies of God, all the peoples of the earth, God is my salvation, and I will trust and not be afraid. And I submit to you in these days of anxiety, in these days of fear, if you are in Christ, you could have the same thing. I'm going to trust, and I'm not going to be afraid. I'm not going to allow the, manip the media to manipulate me. I'm not going to let anybody let me. I am going to put my hope and trust in God. Yesterday we had a good conversation about the sovereignty of God and we were talking about that all the days for us are already written. God knows them. There isn't a disease that breaks on the scene that all of a sudden just makes a U-turn and... and, 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 and 
destroys the plan of God. God knows. Life and of death. The Bible is very clear about this. Life and death is of God. If our names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundations of the world, then God is completely omniscient and knows all things. How can he not know? Are you saying that we're more powerful than God? We're going to alter the course? Now, does that produce fatalism? Is it like, oh, well, I'm going to go run on I-4 at midnight wearing all black and I'm going to... No, you're not going to do something. That's called stupidity. And if you die that way, God ordained that you died as a fool. We're going to live and we're going to live purposely and we're going to live intentionally, but we will live in peace because God is my salvation. Look what else he goes on to say. He says... He will trust and be afraid, uh, not be afraid. Why? For the Lord God is my strength. Notice what else he says. He is the song in my heart. And he is my salvation. All of the praise here in response to what God did in chapter 11. All of the praise is right where it belongs. Where? In God. In God. All the praise to the great God and King. This does not sound like indifferent people. This does not sound like people who have other interests. These are people who have lost or who are lost in the wonder and the splendor of God. Oh, church, when was the last time we were lost? And the awesomeness and the beauty and the glory and the might of God. Look at the way Paul put it in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 to 19. Speaking to the church, he says that he, meaning God, would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Notice what he says. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up with all of the fullness of God. Right there and then is my Christmas desire. That I would be filled with all of the fullness of God. That I would know the power. That I would be strengthened in Christ with the strength of his might. How is it that many that, that claim to know the love of Christ, yet turn an indifferent heart to God? My Christmas wish is to know God. Is to move the heart of God. Is to render completely to God, all of my will, that all of my praise, that all of my honor, that all of my glory would be Him. In short, my Christmas wish for me and for all those who are born again is that we would know God and be known by our God. And I pray that your heart. Since day one, that's what the church has been about. From day one, the desire was that we would indeed be different. That our message, our word, everything about it would be different. And I think all of a sudden I've realized maybe we are a little bit different. 
church, I pray for that mighty move of God, that genuine, spontaneous, authentic move of His Holy Spirit. And I'll tell you what, if we come together as one voice, one heart, one people, and beseech God, and raid the throne room of God with our prayers, our supplication, and our tears, listen to me. God will answer. He will do it. Look at verse 3. I love this verse. Full of imagery. Therefore you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. God is not only to be Israel's strength and song, but instead God will be their sustenance. God alone will satisfy. God will satisfy their spiritual thirst. That strong compulsion for life. Church, I think nothing typifies our desire for God better than the word thirst. Hey, remember Jesus, Matthew chapter 5? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for God. The two most strenuous, compelling, physiological urges of the human body. Hunger and thirst. Now you can go a long time without food, but you cannot go a long time without water. Remember Jesus to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4? In verse 10, remember the scene? Jesus says, hey, Samaritan lady, go get me a drink. And the woman goes, "Uh, I don't have anything to fetch with. And what does Jesus say to her? Jesus answered her and said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you what? Living water. Living water. And I say to the church today, if you know the gift of God and you hear the Word of God reaching out to you and you know who it is who's calling you, you too would say, Lord, give me that living water. And the most coolest thing of all is that for all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Remember Jesus in John 738? He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow torrents of living water. To be fully in Christ is to be fully satisfied in God. We do not merely rejoice because we've escaped judgment. That's what, that's what salvation has been relegated to. I'm safe. I'm not going to hell. I'll see you in heaven, brother. I'll see you in heaven. We forget about the new birth. We forget about the work of the Holy Spirit. We forget about everything, so we proceed forward in and of our own strength, in our own time. And we forget. Maybe that's not the right word. I'm born again. And being born again, I rely on something greater than food or drink. 
Jesus said it this way, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. To be a Christian is to live on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Where do I hear the word of God? Right here. Right here. But how can we sustain ourselves if we ignore the word of God? How could we sustain ourselves if we ignore prayer? How could we sustain ourselves if we ignore the assembling of the brethren together? How can we sustain ourselves? You've heard me say this a million times. I have never met anyone who professes to be a follower of Jesus Christ who does not read the word of God, contemplate the word of God, spend time in prayer, be a part of a local fellowship who is strong, vitalized, rooted, and grounded in Christ. You know why? Because they don't exist. Eliminate this. Take a drink of water every three or four days. Don't put food in your body. You're going to lose weight, but you're going to lose weight in a very unhealthy manner. And many believers walk around in a very unhealthy state. To touch the heart of God, to move the heart of God, God Himself, Christ Himself, must be all to us. He must be our greatest affection. He must be our loftiest thought. He must be our fullest satisfaction. And it's my prayer, really, that we would see an end to part-time Christianity. That we would see an end to indifferent Christianity. That God would revitalize and revive His church and He would revive His people and His people would know what it is to have a genuine, spontaneous, authentic move of God in their lives and fire, fire from God, fire from heaven would descend upon the church. Does not God, here's a question for us to think about, does not God deserve our very best? I mean, I know we know this, but I want you to hear it. Does not God deserve our very best? How will we touch the heart of God if we give Him anything less? As for me, I've said it several times. I want to touch the heart of God. I don't want to be famous. I want to have a church of 5,000, 6,000. I don't want to go to these uh, pastor's conferences and say, we have 48 services a week. 500 of them are video cast all over the place. And we got about 900 guys on our staff. And forget that. The world has had enough of that. We have more everything. And the church is probably in America in the worst shape it's ever been. I want to touch the heart of God. I want reality. I want to know God and I want God to know me. Look at verse 4. And in that day, you will say, speaking of Israel, give thanks to the Lord, call on His name, make known His deeds among the people, make them remember that His name is exalted. In that millennial kingdom, this is going to be the testimony of Israel. They will make his name known among the nations, but 
I submit to you today, before that time, that is precisely the role of the church. That the church is to make His name glorious. That the church is to exalt the glory and the praise and the honor of God. And how does the church do it? Through the proclamation of the gospel. It is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. It is the gospel that changes lives. It is the gospel that takes a man or woman who was walking in sin and was steeped in sin and causes them to be an instrument of righteousness for the kingdom of God. And it's the church who declares to the world, born to you this day, in the city of David is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. If the church does not proclaim that, who does? Well, it's not going to be the believers. Unbelievers. The unbelievers have a distorted message of that. You know, their message is, born to you this day in the city of David is a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and He's going to make all of your dreams come true. And the unbelievers are going to say, born to you this day as a Savior is Christ the Lord if He's good for you. If that's your truth, that's great. If Muhammad is your truth, that's great. If another one is your truth, that's great. Hey, we all worship the same God. If the church does not proclaim the glory of Christ, and who is the church? Believers. Individual believers. If we do not proclaim the glory of Christ, who will? When Christ first came, God in His sovereignty and providence chose initially the heavenly host. Born to you this day. And that's the last time you see Him. God said, you know what? I'm going I'm to send my son. He's going to be a savior. And we're going to raise up a kingdom of priests to our God. That's you and me, by the way, if you are in Christ. You priest to God. What does a priest do? A priest serves before God. And God in the church has chosen some to be prophets. What are prophets? Prophets are those who prophetically prophesy the word of God. Make known the word of God. Not the predictive. Not the one who goes, you know, uh, there's somebody here who needs a root canal. And it's in the left molar. And, but the men who proclaim the word of God as the word of God has been revealed. Hey, that's our job. And can I share something? It's not a burden. You don't have to go, oh man, I'm tasked with bringing the word. I don't want It's not a burden. It's such a joy, such a privilege. You know, the Apostle Paul talks about, you, you read the writings of the epistles of the Apostle Paul, and he talks about all the costs that he paid for bringing the gospel. He's been beaten, he's been whipped, he's been shipwrecked, he's been, you know, he ends up in a maritime prison and he gets his head cut off for the gospel. 
But nowhere do you see the Apostle Paul say, man, this wasn't worth it. Why do we think it's not worth it? What a great honor. That God would take a bozo like me and use me to proclaim the word of God? What an honor. And God will use every single one of you. There's no retirement in the kingdom of God. There's not a respecter of age. God can cause a donkey to speak. What could he do with a 14-year-old boy or girl? What could he do with an 80-year-old senior citizen? What could he do with a 25-year-old? What could he do with a 102-year-old? God can do anything through all of us for the glory of his name. It doesn't matter what degree you have. It doesn't matter whether you dig a ditch or you build rocket ships. God can take you. If you put yourself in the will of God, if you say, Father, avail me, use me however you desire. Oh, God, please. God will say, son, daughter, I'm going to use you. Bless his holy name. Take a look at verse 5. Bear with me, man. I'm, just give me a little bit here. But in response to that, verse 5 says, Praise the Lord in song, for he has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. The redeemed of Israel, the saved Israel, will sing the song of the Lord. But that is what we do. You notice these parallels between millennial Israel and the church? We do that. We sing not because it's tradition. I've been in many churches, man, when the time of worship comes, and this is what you see. And can it be... Really? 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 All over the Word of God, the Word of God declares that God's people are to sing and to declare His praise. Listen to the Scripture. Psalm 98.2 Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done wonderful things. His right hand and His holy arm have gained the victory for Him. Psalm 96.3 Tell of His glory among the nations, His wonderful deeds among the people. Psalm 98.1 Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done wonderful things. His right hand and His holy arm have gained the victory for them. Ephesians 5.19-20 he tell, Paul tells us speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all the things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God. God, even the Father. Look at Revelation. Want to know what you do in heaven? Here's how it begins. Revelations 5, 9. And they sang a new song. Worthy art thou to take the book and break its seal, for thou wast slain and did purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. 
Trust me when I tell you, in heaven, the worship's not going to be what you're seeing mostly today. And it's not going to be just singing out of a, 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 a hymn book. It's going to be singing from the heart. The hymn book is going to be the heart. And we're going to be in awe and wonder and splendor going, what in the world am I doing here? But praise God, I am here. God deserves our praise. He deserves, listen to me well, He deserves our adoration. Not merely at Christmas time. Sometimes I think that, you know, many people pat themselves on the back because they have a Keep Christ in Christmas bumper sticker. And say, I'm telling the world, nobody's going to tell me how to celebrate Christmas. What happens on December 26th? What happens on January 1st? What happens in the middle of June? How can we touch the heart of God if we do not praise Him? How can we praise Him if we do not adore Him? How can we adore Him if we don't spend time with Him? How do we spend time with Him if we don't know Him? And how could we love Him if the very best we give is indifference to Him? Listen, if we're going to touch the heart of God, let us abandon ourselves of all that is ourselves. And let us walk, speak, sing the praises of our Savior, who is our heart. For truly, He has done great things. I was sharing with the folks yesterday at my house. I said I went out to do a few errands to pick up stuff for the open house. And I heard, how great thou art. Now I'm always moved by that song. But as I was coming up university and I made my left onto Alifaya to start heading home, Colonial, I've got my directions wrong. It got to the part where that song says, When Christ shall come with shouts of acclamation and take me home, oh, what joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art. Let me tell you, I sobbed like a baby. Why? Because I look forward to that day when all things will be made known and I will be fully known. And I know on that day, should that come through the return of Jesus Christ or that should come through death. I know that lost in the wonder, lost in the glory, lost in the splendor, lost in my Savior, that I will gladly fall on my knees and proclaim, my God, how great thou art.
And you know where it will happen? Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art, O God. How great thou art. O church, our God deserves praise. Our God deserves honor. Our God deserves glory. Our God deserves our very best. Oh, that we as a body of believers would come to that place and touch the heart of God. Lastly, verse 6. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. As Israel will sing one day, so let the church cry out with joy for our Savior. For we know God, that God is indeed in our midst. Do we not know that? Listen to Romans 8, 11. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit which indwells you. Romans 8.14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. In this day, church, the great God is in the midst of believers. Truthfully, not metaphorically, truthfully. I'm not sure that many in the church realize this today. When I say the church, I mean the church in general. What, it, what was the prophecy to Isaiah 9-6 for, for a virgin, uh, 7-14? For shall, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. So you say, okay, well, that's the incarnation of Jesus. You're 100% right. 100%. But then in John 17, Jesus said, I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. That, Father, that they would be in me and I in thee, and we would be one with the Father. And Jesus said in John 14, 15, and 16, hey, I'm going to go away. I'm going to send you another. Another. One of the same kind is what it literally means. I'm going to send you to paraclete. I'm going to send you to comforter. I'm going to send you to one that comes alongside you. And he also said, hey, in that day, don't worry about what you're going to say because the Holy Spirit is going to give you the words that you're going to be able to speak to them. You see, God has not left us alone. We're not orphaned here on the world. We're not relegated to the whims of the administration. We are of God if we are in Christ. And he is in our midst. And we ought to love him. The helper, the comforter, the one of the same kind is here. And he has come that we the redeemed, those that are born again, are his children. Therefore, the church should shout for joy. Shout for joy. How'd that all come together? Because God sent His Son to take the form of humanity 
to be born of a woman, to be born of, subjected to all the temptations and all the sin as we are yet without sin, to become a sacrifice, to make atonement for a penalty and a wrath that was rightly due each and every one of us. Isaiah 61 says this, 60 verse 1. Rise and shine, for your light is come. And the glory of the Lord has been revealed and has risen upon you. I started today's message with my Christmas. Again, the word bothers me. I, I, I use the term wish, but probably desire is a better word. And I said, I yearn for a day when I, when we, touch the heart of God, when our souls are so full of joy, full of the glory of the Lord, that we genuinely touch the heart of God. And I've mentioned to you that I don't mean this figuratively, symbolically. I'm not using allegory. I mean this literally. Literally. And I want you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, to experience the same. We're a few days from Christmas. And the next few days are going to be filled with a frenzy pace of family, friends, gifts, meals. But let us ask ourselves this question. Do I touch the heart of God? If you are saved, if you are born again, there's no doubt that Christ has indeed touched your heart. But the real question is, do you touch his heart? I want you to consider this as you go home. I want you to consider this as you fall into your routines this week. I want you to consider this as you go to be with friends and family. I want you to consider this when you're alone. And beyond considering this, I want you to put this into action. To begin to search and to yearn for Christ, and to draw near to Him. As the Word of God states, if you draw near to Him, He will allow Himself to be found. You believe that? If you draw near to God, He's going to allow Himself to be found. God isn't duplicitous. God isn't, hey, I'm going to hide. They can't find me here. Oh, let me go over here. He can't find me here. That's not God. You search with God with all of your heart. He will allow Himself to be found. Let us all repent of all that stands in the way of touching the heart of God. And let, us, let us run to Christ. Let us run to Him. And let us tell of His great love and His mercy for us. And may the Lord be magnified. And may the Lamb that was slain receive the reward of His suffering. Folks, this is the best Christmas wish you could ever ask for. Let us pray. Mighty Father, to you be all the glory and all of the honor and all of the praise. For Father, you are so much more worthy than anything we could articulate 
more than anything we could imagine, more than anything we could ever do. If we were to live a million millenniums, we could never render to you what you justly deserve. And so, Lord, humbly, I ask that we would touch your heart. That as the new year approaches, and should you tarry, Lord, and should we live, that, Father, we would pursue you with everything we have. And, Father, I also ask you, if there's anyone here whose heart is trusting in their good works or they're trusting in a, a decision they made X amount of years ago, but the reality of God is absent from their lives and they know who they are. Father, that your Holy Spirit would convict, that your Holy Spirit would move in any way. Father, I am so thankful that you know the hearts, not me, you do. But Lord, as we celebrate our Lord's first coming, that this would be the day that they would turn to you and entrust themselves to you for salvation. Lest we forget, Father, that you sent your Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, who lived and walked among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of God, who is tempted and tried in all ways, yet without sin, Father, who willingly, intentionally, deliberately offered himself a sacrifice for sin. Lord, who was crucified at the hands of sinful men, who was died, who was buried, who rose again on the third day, Lord God, so that as the Apostle Paul says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That they would make that the confession of their heart. And they would remember the words of Jesus, unless ye repent, you will all die in your sins. Lord, that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. We ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.